All right. Uh, if you'll open your bulletins, uh, you'll see uh, Luke chapter 19. Uh, we finished up our series on Judges uh, last week, and, um, uh, and we are on uh, to kind of this week on Palm Sunday, we'll have Easter Sunday, uh, and then um, after Easter, we're going to do uh, a little series on um, the implications of the resurrection. Uh, what does the resurrection mean for you and for me in our daily lives? That's really uh, what we're going to dive into. Um, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that uh, you have not hidden your will for us. You have not hidden who you are from us. Uh, you have not left us to guess and put together the pieces of who we are. Uh, but you have told us very clearly who you are, who we are, and what our world is like in your word. And uh, so, Lord, thank you for uh, how we see your creation, the beauty of it. Lord, we see the reason why it's not what you've intended, why it's broken because of the fall. And, Lord, we have seen uh, that you have mapped a way through uh, in Jesus for redemption and restoration. And, Lord, for that, we are thankful uh, that we stand in the middle of this story and we wait for you uh, to make the dark places come to light. Uh, Lord, would you do that um, even now as we're together through your word and through your spirit? Amen. Um, if you've been around me very much, you know that I am uh, one of the, the most unhandy people you've ever been around. Uh, I can't fix anything. Uh, I can't repair anything. I can't build anything. Uh, I often feel uh, a little like the Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights. Yes, that's two references to Talladega Nights in a month. That's how mature I am. Where he says, uh, what do I do with my hands? I, don't, I, I can't do anything useful with my hands. Um, and that really, uh, that really stinks, especially when you're poor and you're in graduate school. Um, Jen and I, when we uh, graduated from UK, uh, we made the really bright decision to keep going in school. And uh, Jenna went for three more years. I went for four and a half more. And um, so we lived in Birmingham for three, Boston for one, after, uh, to continue our education. Uh, both of us, uh, we worked part-time jobs that whole time. And that's how we paid our bills. We didn't have any student loans uh, on top of uh, our tuition. We didn't have friends or family who felt so sorry for us that they sent us checks, except for my friend Kevin's mom sent us $25 four or five times. And um, so we were poor, really, really, really poor. And because we were poor, we drove old cars with lots of miles. And so things broke on those cars and they broke often. Thankfully, I had a friend in our church in Birmingham. He was an ambulance mechanic. His name was ben, is Ben Ernest. And uh, so we would work on our cars on Sunday afternoons. And I think he made it. I, I mean, I liked Ben a lot. Uh, and he was helping me out big time. Uh, he uh, liked me a lot, and he knew he was helping me out big time, but he also wanted to teach me how to work on my cars. And so uh, he thought uh, that I was picking up what he was putting down. Um, and I wasn't, because what's common sense to him was not common sense to me. And uh, he, he, when he had explained things to me, he was bewildered that I was bewildered. And finally, I just said, Ben, do you want to stand up at church on Sunday with your Bible and tell people about Jesus? And he said, no way. I could never do that. I, I wouldn't even know the first thing on how to prepare or even what to say. And I said, great. I'll preach. You fix cars. 
there was one time uh, that my car wouldn't start. And so we first tried. I, I, I said, hey, we got to put a new battery in this thing. He said, that, that's a good idea. So we put it, spent about $100 to put a new battery in my car. Still wouldn't start. So we put a new starter in my car. Uh, he kind of tested it. I said, man, your starter's bad too. So put a new starter in. We fixed our battery. I replaced my battery, replaced my starter. Still wouldn't start. So he said, hey, we got to do the alternator. And I said, great. So we put in the alternator and finally my car would work. And I, at the end, I was like, man, I always thought that when your car wouldn't start, it was just because of your battery. And he said, no, no, no. He said, it's any of these three things can go bad. It's just that all three of yours were bad. <laughs> and I realized something. I learned that there are multiple reasons that your car won't start. It's a lot more nuanced and complicated than I had originally thought. I thought it was pretty simple. No start, need battery. And I tell this stupid story because I think we tend uh, to look, uh, we tend towards having a very black and white, uh, cut and dry paradigm for how we miss Jesus. When in reality, it's a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced than we think. See, there's lots of, there's multiple ways to miss Jesus, to reject him. Christians often think that there's two paths. There's the good one. There's the one with Jesus uh, and then there's the bad one, the one without Jesus. The path with Jesus is marked by living a good life and being obedient. Uh, the bad life, the one without Jesus, is marked by wild living and disobedience. But a really careful reading of the Gospels as a whole will reveal that there is not one way of missing Jesus, but there's really two. The first way is by rejecting the Bible's teachings. Uh, these people who reject the Bible's teachings are usually really fond of Jesus. They're impressed by him. But when the rubber meets the road, when life gets tough, or when following Jesus costs them something, they bail on Jesus. That's one way to reject Jesus. The second way of rejecting Jesus is by following the Bible's teaching, but rejecting one's need for a Savior. This kind of person is in church, they know Christian lingo, but they think that God owes them something because they've done such a good job of obeying Him. But you see how that really rejects Jesus, don't you? See, all of us, we've got a tendency to relate to Jesus as more Lord and less Savior, or more Savior and less Lord. So it's important to know which way you lean, because this leaning is, is based on your temperament, it's based on your story. But let me be very, very clear. No matter which way you lean, you are rejecting Jesus, even though you think you're kind of getting him. You're rejecting him altogether. And this is what we'll see in our passage. So let's read uh, Luke 19. We'll read 28 through uh, 44. And when he, this is Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Uh, don't try that at the store, by the way. <laughs> so those of you uh, who were sent uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. 
And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. All right. So Jesus, when we get to Luke 19, uh, he's just got a few days left in his earthly life. He's just got about a week before he's crucified. Or about five days before he's crucified. And Luke has been giving us hints. Uh, if you were to read the Luke, all, Luke all the way through, you start in chapter 1, you get, start getting into Jesus' ministry. Uh, you will see that Jesus is giving us uh, some hints that speak that, to his journey to Jerusalem. Um, he's steadfast and he's resolutely postured to get to Jerusalem because he knows his mission. His mission is to die in Jerusalem. You could see this in 1911, and then you see it in our passage, verse 28, when it says, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. But there's a problem. What Jesus has in mind in going to Jerusalem and what the disciples have in mind are very, very different. See, Jesus, in these hints, has been given some that are obvious, some that aren't obvious, uh, that his mission as the Messiah is to come and die. His disciples, on the other hand, think that as the Messiah, he's going to come and he's going to overthrow the Roman government. So they're different in what they expect, but both Jesus and the disciples are on the same page about one thing. They're on the same page that something really, really significant is about ready to happen. And when Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey, he's telling his disciples the nature of his rule. See, he's not going to come as a normal person. A normal person, where Jesus is at here, is, is just one, two, three miles from the city gates of Jerusalem. It's really close. But normal people walk into Jerusalem, but Jesus is not a normal person. Yes, he's human, but he's also God. And he wants to message that he's God by arriving a way that a king would arrive. See, a king would not arrive by walking into Jerusalem. A king would likely enter on a fancy horse. Horses were rare, and they were very, very expensive, and normal people didn't ride fancy horses. Normal people, for long journeys, would ride donkeys, but this wasn't a long journey. So Jesus is getting in the middle of this. He's not, he's not uh, like the world's kings, but he's not a normal person who would just walk a mile or two. He's the, he's the humble king, and so he's going to come in on a donkey. And this is what has been prophesied about Jesus. Uh, if, you, if we were to look at Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9, 
It's about 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And it reads this. I want you to l l listen to the turn here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. You can see them. They're pumping their fists in the air. Yes! Suffering no more. A triumphant king is going to come for us and save us. Now, here, listen to what Zechariah says. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they went from throwing their fists in the air to now scratching their heads. Huh? If a king rides in a donkey, that means he's going to lose. That's a loser kind of king, not a triumphant kind of king. It just doesn't make any sense. So it's hard to swallow that Jesus is at one and the same time that he's triumphant, but he's also humble. So when Jesus rides into town on a donkey, it would be like the king riding in on a tricycle or a huffy. Kings don't ride huffies. So how do the people, how are they going to react to Jesus being king and being on a donkey? What do we learn about their reactions? Well, we learn that there's two ways to miss Jesus. So let's look at it. The first one uh, we see in verses 35 through 38, we see that it's missing Jesus' lordship. And we see this in the disciples. Starting in verse 35, you see that Jesus is welcomed very warmly by his disciples. Uh, their actions, they tell it. They're, they're thoroughly impressed by him. So they lay cloaks on the donkey. They don't give him a proper saddle, but at least they don't have him ride bareback because dignitary people don't ride on bareback. So they put cloaks on the donkey and they go even farther and they began, uh, they give, give the donkey and Jesus this red carpet treatment by putting now cloaks on the ground because the ground is dirty and kings shouldn't be riding their steed on dirty ground. There's no honor in that. But then their words back up their actions. Look at verse 37. And the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they lay down these things. Now they sing this little ditty right here. And they're really saying, strike up the band, bring out the finest champagne. It's time to celebrate. Their excitement has reached a fever pitch. Jesus' demonstration of power, God's demonstration of power through his son Jesus has, has, has been continuous the last three years. The deaf speak, the blind see, the mute talk, the lepers are cleansed, the lame walk, the gospel has been preached at a fever pitch and these disciples have experienced it firsthand. But their understanding of Jesus is very, very shallow. See, Luke makes a very astute observation when he says that they praise him because of the mighty works they have seen. Or praising him for his person. Jesus had their attention. But Jesus did not have their allegiance. Sure, Jesus has done some exciting things, but for these disciples, they're anticipating that the most exciting thing is yet to come. They're expecting Jesus to come in to Jerusalem and kick the Roman tail. 
See, these people, they're very aware that they need a Savior. They know that they don't have what it takes to conquer the Romans. But based on what they've seen out of Jesus, they're ready to place all their chips in his basket for them to overthrow the Romans. The Romans. But if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know exactly what happens. Jesus doesn't overthrow the Romans. He doesn't kick the Romans' tail. And that's when the shallowness of the disciples' faith is exposed. Say in verse 38, they say, blessed is the king. And just three days later, they yell something very different. They yell, crucify him. See, when Jesus is doing what we want him to do, we cry, blessed is Jesus. But when we start to suffer, or when we see that Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we bail on him too. See, many of us, we're just like Jesus' disciples in these passages. We know that things aren't like they should be. We know we don't stand a chance to combat evil in the world or evil in our own hearts. Unless we've got someone stronger than us. So that's when we hitch our wagon to Jesus. And we want Jesus to do just that. It sounds great. But so did the disciples sound great too when they were seeing the latest hit from their Christian radio. But their opinion quickly shifted on Jesus when Jesus wouldn't overthrow the Romans and when he wouldn't save himself from death. See, their problem is that if they align themselves with Jesus, as he suffered, they're going to identify with him. And that means that they're going to have to suffer too. They instinctively recognize that if they're going to call Jesus not just their Savior, but also their Lord, they're going to suffer the same fate as he did. See, to watch Jesus do miracles and to throw your cloak on the donkey and on the ground is easy. But doing what Jesus says is really difficult. So is this you tonight? Have you been really impressed by Jesus and by what he might do in your life? Has he had just your attention and not your allegiance? It could be that tonight he's calling you to set aside your shallow, superficial, and fickle faith for something of substance. Something that's going to require your whole Life. And the church, I mean, really the American church isn't going to help you very much. Uh, the American church, we're distracted. Uh, the American church is trivial. The churches in America tend to be moralistic and sentimental. They're out of touch with really weighty issues like humanity, like eternity like the holiness of God and like suffering. But friends, you just can't grow in spiritual death without taking these kinds of things seriously. Now, some of you are thinking, dang, Mars, you just got me. Well, that's good. I was trying to. <laughs> Others, you're sitting, like, you're sitting there saying something very different. You're saying, preach it, brother. That's what we need these days. There's some serious Christians who think deeply. And you let Jesus be the Lord of every area of their life. Well, that's not good. Because there's a second group of people in our text who rejected Jesus too, but in a very different way. 
Look at verse 39. You see that second group of people? The second group of people were the Pharisees. They were in the crowd, and they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, the Pharisees, they're very comfortable having Jesus as Lord, and that's why they call him teacher. They've learned to give respect to respectable people. They've learned about social graces. And they're even willing to let Jesus teach them a thing or two. The problem is that they don't have any room for Jesus to rescue them. Because they don't think they have anything to be rescued from. They think that they're basically in good shape. Sure, there could be some minor tweaks. Some small improvements could be made. And that's just how Jesus might help them, or with these minor improvements and these small tweaks. Really, they just want Jesus to make them better versions of themselves. But on the whole, the Pharisees are very confident in their own moral accomplishments. Think about it. If you at a baseline believe that you're basically good, and you are saving yourself by having more good deeds than bad deeds, then you have no need for emotional outbursts like the disciples just had. Sure, Jesus might be worth listening to for some help time to time so you can be a better Christian, but why get excited? Well, apparently Jesus thinks there's plenty of reasons to get excited, and that's why he says what he does in verse 40. You see what he says right there? It says, I tell you, if these, meaning the disciples, were silent, the rocks would cry out. See, the humble king, the humble king mentioned in Zechariah chapter 9 has finally come, and that's worth celebrating. The Pharisees know Zechariah 9 just fine. They know the Old Testament backwards and forwards, but they don't see Jesus because they're dead. That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it. So apparently, the rocks have more life in them than the Pharisees. They've rejected Jesus, and Jesus gives them this stinging indictment. So how do you know if you're a Pharisee? Well, I think there's two ways that you can know. And really, I think we see them in our text. The first one is you cast judgment on others. That's what the Pharisees did. They said, rebuke your disciples. But you know what? Shallow people, simple people, and ignorant people, those kind of people who live in, a desperate, in desperation all the time, like Jesus' disciples right here in this passage, they're never judgmental. They know they are a mess. They've got other problems. But one of them is not being judgmental. And so as you go throughout the Gospels, you never see people like Jesus' disciples calling out the Pharisees. The only person you see calling out the Pharisees is Jesus. Because it's going to take the hammer of the Son of God to make a dent in their thick skulls. And Jesus gets that hammer out when he makes that rock comment. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing with you tonight. He's saying, hey, while you're over here looking down on someone else for their lack of depth, for their erratic behavior, for their lack of money, for their unsmooth personality, I'm telling you that you are deader than a rock. 
And the second way you know you're a Pharisee is that you defend yourself by making excuses. There's a story I read this week about Adolf Eichmann. Uh, Adolf Eichmann was one of the main organizers for the, uh, for the Holocaust uh, during World War II for uh, the Nazi party. And um, he was, after the war, uh, unlike you know, Hitler, more or less killed himself, and uh, others uh, were killed, other Nazi leaders were killed in battle, uh, but not uh, Mr. Eichmann. Mr. Eichmann uh, was arrested and he was put on trial. So this is maybe the biggest leader in the Nazi party who survived. And so journalists after World War II, I mean, they were, uh, they, they, uh, they swarmed the scene of the court as he was put on trial for his war crimes. And the journalists, uh, they expected to find a monster of a man. But what they found was a very normal older man. They observed that the most troubling thing about Eichmann was not any outward expression of hate towards the Jews. What was so frightening about Mr. Eichmann was his capacity for defending himself and to excuse his behavior. So this raises a really tough question for me and you tonight, doesn't it? If people can justify the most terrible crimes in history... How much more can we justify our behavior? See, we use excuses like this. We think they're harmless, but they're really not. We say things like, you misunderstood me. You know what that really means? I'm not as bad as you think. Or, that's just who I am. You know what that really means? I'm a sinner and you're going to have to deal with it. I was just being honest really means, can't you handle the truth, or are you just that fragile? I didn't mean to do it. really means I didn't mean to get caught. I'm just feeling, I'm just saying what I'm feeling. What you're really saying is there's nothing wrong with your feelings. Or when you're in an argument, somebody says, we have a personality problem or a communication problem. What you're really saying is, you're half the problem. And I think if Luke would have continued this conversation past verse 40 with the Pharisees, you would have seen a whole string of excuses on their lips. But ultimately, just like disciples in verses 35 through 39, the Pharisees too reject Jesus. And it's because he exposed their self-justification to the point that they had to kill him. So here we have two different kinds of people who have rejected Jesus in these verses 35 to 40. And then 41 starts. See in your Bibles, you probably get to, if you were to open them up, you'd see that there's a break uh, between 40 and 41. I didn't create that, I didn't put that break in there because I don't think that's what Luke, those breaks were put in uh, later. They weren't in Luke's original manuscript. Because Luke wants you to know what happens in verse 41. See it? And when he drew near Jesus... And saw the city, he wept over it. See, you, you get done with verse 40 and, and, and you want to know, what's the state of Jesus at this juncture? What does Jesus do about these shallow disciples? He, he knows they're going to cry out, crucify him in just a few days. What does he do with these Pharisees who are so judgmental, making excuses? He cries over them. See, eventually, I, bet you, I can just see Jesus. He, he asks for a moment of privacy. And he says, I need to find a place that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. 
and he goes there. And when he looks out over the city, the city represents all kinds of people. It, it includes people just like the disciples behind him who had known about him and ha, had received his message to some degree. And he knows that those people that he's looking down to into that city, that they're going to reject him in just a few days. I think he sees people who are Pharisees or a lot like the Pharisees in that city. And he knows that they're about ready to kill him. And for both kinds of people, he weeps. See, I think if Jesus were to get up into the 30th floor of uh, the big blue building, the fifth third building, or if he was standing here and he was looking at us, I think he'd weep. He would see people whose faith is very shallow. People who would abandon him when the times get tough. I think he'd see people who trust in their own righteousness instead of his for their salvation, just like the Pharisees. And he would weep. And he would weep because he desired us. He rode to the city on the donkey and he died for shallow and self-righteous people who rejected him. So friends, uh, this Easter, will you get beyond the lilies? Beyond the chocolate bunnies? Beyond the family hoopla of plans? Beyond gorging yourself at some big meal? Would you see the beauty of the gospel? Yeah, your sin is great. Mine is too. We either have flaky faith or we've got this performance-oriented religion. But either way, we reject Jesus. Yet Jesus still weeps over us because He loves us. And because He doesn't want you to experience the judgment that awaits all who reject Him. Let's pray. Jesus, it just blows my mind that you would weep over those people. If I were you, I, I would have shunned those people. I would have shunned me a long time ago. But Lord, you continue to in, invite us back to give us another shot, uh, to embrace us in your love. Um, so Lord, we thank you for your grace toward us. In Christ's name, amen.